For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi, and welcome to this week's podcast on the book of Revelation. I'm John Cassinet. I'll be your host as usual. This is about my fifth podcast, and uh, if you're still watching and or listening, uh, I can only say you must be a glutton for punishment. This week's podcast uh, is entitled Numerology and Symbols, but if it were to have a subtitle, I'd probably call it the Lettuce Sandwich podcast. Now, to give you a little background on the uh, lettuce sandwich, I have to go back many years into my youth uh, when I was working on my grandfather's ranch in Saratoga, Wyoming. And uh, in those days, we used to do uh, what's called custom hang. So we would take our equipment and we would go to various ranches in the valley and would uh, put up their hay in the summertime. And we had uh, a pretty good-sized crew. Uh, our equipment, a lot of it, was kind of held together with uh, baling wire and bubble gum. But uh, I'll tell you what, we could put up some hay on. If we had good conditions, um, good weather, uh, a good hay crop, you know, we could easily put up 100 ton of hay a day. And <clears throat> that's, that's a pretty good amount. Um, so uh, when we would go out and we would travel to uh, the various ranches in the area, We'd usually take our lunch with us, but if we were closer to home working on our own hay, then uh, my grandmother or my aunts would uh, bring up lunch to us and uh, we'd eat there in the, the hay field wherever we were at. But on this one particular day, uh, we were working at home on what's known as the 18 acres, and for whatever reason, uh, um, we didn't have any lunch set up and so we sent my grandfather down to uh, the town in Saratoga to pick us up some lunch meat and making sandwiches things of that nature and you know he's gone a little over an hour it's about right given the distance he had to travel he comes back we all start gathering around uh, one of the hay cribs uh, to have lunch and uh, we're pulling stuff out of the uh, the grocery bags and the bread and you know condiments and lettuce stuff stuff like that and uh, <clears throat> as we start to kind of look around a little bit we're we're kind of noticing there's no lunch meat <laughs> and uh, my grandfather he was just kind of immune to some of the looks we were giving him like uh, where's the beef you know and uh, after a minute, he kind of noticed that we're all looking at him. Nobody's asking him, where's where's the beef or where's the ham and, and the cold cuts and stuff like that. And he'd already gotten his sandwich, put a piece of lettuce between a couple slices of bread, was just munching away. And uh, so finally, I think it was my Uncle Will worked up the nerve to, to ask Grandpa, where's the meat? <laughs> And uh, his response was, what's the matter with you guys? Haven't you ever had a lettuce sandwich? <laughs> and so the thing I could tell you was up until that time in my young life, I can honestly say, no, I, I don't think I'd ever had a lettuce sandwich. But uh, I had one that day, and uh, that was also probably the last day that I ever had a lettuce sandwich. 
Um, and you might be asking yourself now that you know a little bit about the background of the lettuce sandwich, what does that have to do with the book of Revelation? And uh, the thing that it has to do is uh, the numerology and symbols that we'll be talking about today as we discuss uh, the book of Revelation. Because if you don't understand the numerology and the symbolism in the book of Revelation, then it's a little bit like eating a lettuce sandwich. And you might have been eating a lettuce sandwich for your whole life uh, when you've read the book of Revelation and frankly, a lot of other scripture. If you don't understand the symbology, then essentially you're going through life eating a lettuce sandwich, never realizing that you're actually missing the real meat of what's uh, contained in the scriptures. And so that's what we want to try and avoid. From now on, <clears throat> I'm going to teach you about the, the numerology and the symbols so that you'll never have to eat a lettuce sandwich again when you read the scriptures. Uh, I, I have one other illustration. <laughs> this this one comes from uh, a, a, a comedy, <clears throat> a situational comedy, uh, something like laughing or something. They were they were kind of doing a satire on the Lone Ranger and, and for those of you who are old enough to remember the Lone Ranger and his sidekick Tonto, Tonto always used to call the Lone Ranger Kimosabi and so in this uh, little satire they were doing on this comedy show uh, they kind of brought it into the present tense where supposedly the Lone Ranger's on the telephone and he's having a conversation with Tonto and for one reason or another they're upset with each other and I don't remember why they were upset but I just remember they're having a heated conversation on the telephone and you only hear one side of the conversation. So you see the Lone Ranger, he's talking to Tonto, but you only hear what the Lone Ranger is saying. And so that at some point in this heated conversation, the Lone Ranger says something to Tonto like, yeah, yeah, Tonto, of course I remember Kimosabi. And uh, what? Do I know what Kimosabi means? No, I, I don't know what it means. What it? What does Kimosabi mean, Tonto? And then he's got this uh, crazy uh, look on his face, very startled and uh, very concerned, and, and he yells back into the phone, Well, Kimosabi to you too, Tonto! <laughs> and so the funny part about it is we don't realize what Kimosabi actually means until Tonto explains it to us, but all of a sudden, whatever it was that Tonto told to the Lone Ranger in that telephone conversation, all of a sudden, it added a whole new dimension to what he understood about his relationship with Tonto. And so it is also in the, the scriptures and in the book of Revelation. If we don't know what these symbols are, then until somebody explains to us what Kimosabi is, we're just walking through life thinking that uh, Tonto and the Lone Ranger uh, are getting along just fine until he's told what Kimosabi actually means. <laughs> so at any rate, <clears throat> it's a little bit like the Romans. Uh, they don't realize, for example, the, the meaning of the first beast in uh, Revelation 13. To them, it's just a Kimosabi that no one's ever bothered to explain to them. But if they realize what the first what beast was and that it was to them a kimosabi <laughs> you know they would have gotten upset and uh, history might have been quite a bit different so that's what we're going to be doing today we're going to try to understand uh, better 
what the kemosabis of the book of Revelation are so that we don't have to go through the rest of our lives eating lettuce sandwiches without ever realizing that that's all we're eating in our lives is the, the lettuce and not the meat. So now last week we talked a little bit about the structure of the book of Revelation, specifically the 10 divisions in the book of Revelation, which helped to establish the foundation for understanding the content. So today, as we talk about the numbers, primarily the numbers, not so much the symbolism part of the book of Revelation, although the numbers have a great deal of symbolism associated with them. So today, in any rate, we'll be talking about the numbers and how they are an important part to our understanding of the book of Revelation. So if the, if the divisions in the book of Revelation that I talked about last week represent uh, the foundation for our understanding, then the numbers represent an important part of the structure, kind of like the framing of the walls that eventually will hang pictures on and nice images and symbols that'll be representative of the finish work on the structure that we're building. Um, so that's kind of the sequence of how things are coming together. Today we get to uh, deal with an important part of the structure, which is the framing. So now what does it mean when we talk about numerology? Uh, it has several different meanings depending on the context. There is a, a certain uh, occult associated with numerology called arithmancy and uh, this deals with the supernatural, mystical, or magical beliefs and practices. It's essentially a false worship in which numbers have a divine relationship to corresponding events. It's, uh, it's akin to the paranormal, the astrology, uh, the divinatory arts. Uh, it's like, you know, back in the old days, <clears throat> they used to have uh, what's called the twilight zone. It's the old do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's as far as I go in my singing. Um, and I'm not talking about Twilight. So for those of you in the younger generation, there used to be a show called The Twilight Zone. It's not that the, the romance between vampires and stuff called Twilight, which uh, I've never seen an entire episode. So uh, you men in the audience, you'll be happy to know I'm not going to be quoting Twilight in this podcast series. And my apologies to the ladies who might be enamored with the story. But at any rate, it's the twilight zone and astrology and uh, uh, paranormal kinds of things happening. So that, that's not what we're talking about. The numerology of the book of Revelation doesn't have anything to do with the cult. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, if you uh, draw a certain card off the deck, uh, this is what's going to happen in your life. This is the study and meaning of symbolism of numbers, meaning numbers have a non-literal meaning as they get used in the book of Revelation. And this just helps us to understand context. And there's really no dispute among scholars that numbers convey ideas, they convey concepts, they convey certain truths. And if you don't understand the number, then you're going to miss the, uh, the concept and the idea that is being conveyed. And so uh, how do these concepts or truths come about? Uh, what was the context for their creation? A lot of it goes way, way back in history, in the historical uses of certain numbers that came to be used in a symbolic way. So there's a lot of history involved. And this isn't just something that's uh, a part of uh, the Jewish culture, the Hebrew or Israelite concept. This is in other ancient uh, cultures and civilizations, including 
the Babylonians and uh, probably even before then. So <clears throat> the idea is that essentially these numbers uh, from a very long history convey a certain meanings. So we always say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, numbers are that way too. Uh, and by that I mean not the number two, I mean T-O-O. -O. Numbers two have this idea that they convey words. And uh, the big question with the numbers is, what are the thousand words that they convey? Because a picture, you look at it and you can, you can see a lot of meaning. You, you get a sense of what it's saying to you. But with numbers, you have to sometimes uh, wonder, uh, what exactly am I supposed to understand from this particular word in this particular context? So let me give you an illustration of how <clears throat> these things can have different meanings. So when I was living out in California, because I was an attorney, I kind of follow cases and, and other things. And uh, I came across this story one time about uh, a person who had ordered his vanity license plate and he got into a dispute with the DMV about what he wanted to have on his license plate because what he had was his name and I can't remember the guy's name but the last three letters of the um, license plate was going to be Ho, H-O-E. So if his name was Bob, it would be Bob's Ho. Uh, so we just use Bob for ease of reference. Um, and uh, so when he submitted his uh, his request for that on his license plate, the DMV turned him down because they have this standard that whatever you put on your uh, license plate, you, it can't be vulgar, it can't be uh, pornographic, it can't be swear words, it can't be obscene, things like this, all right? And so <clears throat> the person that reviewed this at the DMV kind of thought, well, this looks like it's some kind of an obscenity associated with a whore. Um, and so because it's, he's, it has the word ho in it, uh, we're not going to let him have it. So, you know, freedom of speech is alive and well, except on uh, license plates in California, which I frankly am in favor of. So I'm not being, uh, <laughs> saying anything bad about the rule, but at any rate, so <clears throat> Bob appealed the decision of the person reviewing his case. It went to an administrative hearing. And, uh, you know, I, as an attorney, I, I attended a number of administrative hearings where I was making arguments and I found that they, they tend to be a little bit lopsided in favor of the uh, agency that they are uh, administering their cases. And uh, so <clears throat> Bob lost in the administrative hearing. He actually went to Superior Court uh, to get a rehearing of the administrative decision that denied him his right to have Bob's hoe on his license plate. Well, when the evidence was presented, it turns out that Bob owned a Chevy Tahoe. And he'd actually had this vanity plate for a long period of time. So when he was getting his renewal, it just all of a sudden, they, they changed their tune and said, no, you can't have it anymore. Um, and the context of the Bob's hoe was, and it wasn't some kind of a derogatory, inflammatory, or obscene term, it had reference to the fact that his name was Bob and he had a Chevy Tahoe, so it was Bob's hoe. <laughs> and he won the case. <laughs> so he got to have Bob's hoe on his license plate. But you can see how numbers and, uh, and words of this type, if you don't understand the context, 
then you can have a very different kind of interpretation. So when it comes down to numbers and the question of what does this number mean? What are the thousand words that I am supposed to be deriving from this particular number? Uh, the context is helpful to understand exactly what they mean. So with that background kind of in mind and, and by way of introduction, <clears throat> what I want to do is begin to walk through with you the various numbers that have important meanings in the book of Revelation and, and frankly not limited to just the book of Revelation. It can have meanings associated in other scriptures as well. And we're just going to kind of take them in order, beginning with the lowest uh, significant number. And it's not to say that other numbers don't. If I don't cover your favorite number today, um, <clears throat> you know, it's not because it uh, isn't important, but it just doesn't have the kind of significance that the numbers have that I'll be discussing with you today. So the first number that we begin with is the number three. Uh, not surprisingly, this is a divine number associated with the Godhead. And so you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, this threesome, which uh, is part of what uh, uh, the Catholic Church would call the Trinity. And, uh, you know, there are different meanings about what that means and, uh, and inconsistent uh, doctrines. But at any rate, the idea of uh, three is associated with the, that divineness. Now, it also is associated with completeness, a fullness in both a sacred and in secular context. Um, in the Jewish uh, society, there were three great feasts that required them to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem each year. And so three being a divine number, they had three that actually required people to travel to Jerusalem. These, these included the Passover was the first one. Now the Passover gets held um, on the first full moon after the spring equinox and it typically falls in the March-April time period but it doesn't ever stay the same because it's based on whenever the full moon hits. And so in the Jewish lunar calendar this would have been the 15th of Nisan which is the first month and that's the seventh month in the civil calendar. And so you get these one, and we'll talk about seven a little bit later. The second of uh, the three great feasts was the Feast of Weeks, known as Pentecost. That feast occurred seven weeks after the Feast of the First Fruits and happened in the May-June time period. And so once again, you start to see these numbers uh, coming up. Seven is going to be very common, and, and we'll talk about that when we finally get there. The last of the three great feasts would have been the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as Sukkot, or the Ingathering, or the Feast of Booths, usually happens in about the September or October time frame. This was held on the, fifth, uh, the 15th day of Tessari, and uh, that would have been the first month of the Jewish civil calendar and the seventh month of their ecclesiastical or lunar calendar. So those are the three great feasts, just by way of kind of a little background. Now some other examples or illustrations of the use of three are, for example, the Trisagion. Uh, this is whenever you hear the terms holy, holy, holy declared by an angelic being or someone else, 
uh, or being thrice holy, that's the trisagion. And so it comes in three because it's a divine appellation of holiness and, uh, and in, uh, the idea of uh, worshiping and glorifying whoever it is. So in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, you have the four living creatures who pronounce the trisagion as they worship um, God the Father. We also have the three heavens. So uh, we have the celestial, the terrestrial, and the telestial kingdoms that make up the three kingdoms of glory. And of course, within the celestial kingdom, we have three degrees of glory within that one kingdom. And so you see the, the repetitive use of the number three in various contexts. We also have uh, word combinations uh, that come up in three to express divinity as well. So for example, when John was coming to uh, raise Lazarus from the dead, he declared to Martha who had come down the path in John 14, 6 saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now it's not coincidental that he chose to use three words, way, truth, and life, to describe himself or his persona and personality in using three terms because there is a divinity associated with that. So you can never hear a description of the Savior where three words are used and not now, you know, adding the meat to your lettuce sandwich. Think about, uh, oh, this is an expression of his divinity. That's why they use three words. He's, Jesus was uh, identified uh, as a prophet, priest, and king. Why? Because it's the threefold offices of Christ that, again, have the concept of divinity associated with them. Then we have things like the heaven, the earth, and the sea as an expression of the wholeness of creation. We have morning, noon, and night. We have uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, which uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure that that's a divine thing, uh, except uh, the other exception to this, of course, is if you're a hobbit and you have a second breakfast, it doesn't really work. So, uh, but you have things just kind of naturally come up in threes. We have among the Jewish uh, people, we have three watches of the night. And so uh, in Gethsemane, there were three separate prayers. Remember, so he prays, he goes to pray, he comes back, the disciples are asleep. He goes and prays again. He comes back again, the disciples are asleep, and this time he says, sleep on. And so he goes a third time, and so you have three break divisions of what he was doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, <clears throat> remember also, for example, after the Savior was resurrected, he appears to his disciples uh, who were fishing on the Sea of Galilee where he charges them to feed my sheep. And he does it in a threefold charge, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, three times. When Abraham uh, was uh, making his covenant with the father, he sacrificed three sacrificial animals that were each three years old. So again, these kinds of things come up. Then we have, outside the context of the, uh, the Bible, we have the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. Now you might say, well, that just is happened to be a coincidence. They uh, were three guys that were handy and uh, available to uh, have the angel declare to them that uh, Joseph Smith translated the plates that they were seeing by the gift and power of God. But that's not the case at all because we have three different scriptures that specifically identify that this number was decided 
hundreds and thousands of years before Joseph Smith um, translated the Book of the Book of Mormon. And uh, so we have, for example, in Second Nephi 27, you have Nephi uh, saying that, uh, and this is 2,400 years before the book of Revelation comes forth, he identified that there would be three witnesses to the book of uh, Mormon. Uh, Moroni in Ether chapter 5 verses 2 through 4, likewise identified that there would be three witnesses to the book of Mormon. That's 1,400 years before the three witnesses were identified. Finally, in uh, DNC 5, verses 11 through 13, a revelation from March of 1829, the number three was confirmed, and of course, we now know that those three individuals were Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and David Whitmer, the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Not coincidental, not haphazard. Uh, they were specifically chosen, that number specifically, two, 2,400 years for the first time before the Book of Mormon ever came forth. So those are kind of some illustrations of the number three. The number three is also a divine measure of time and it's associated with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you're probably familiar with the Jewish tradition that uh, when a person dies, their, their spirit kind of hung around for three days before finally saying, well, I guess this is it for me and I'm out of here. Um, you had the example of uh, Jonas, the prophet Jonas, or Jonah, uh, being in the belly of the whale for three days. You have Christ in the tomb for three days. Now, even though he probably, if you count the number of hours in the tomb, he was there somewhere between probably 48, 56 hours or so. He rose the third day, and so the in Jewish counting, uh, they essentially associate a part day with a full day, and so Christ was in the tomb for three days. Again, a, a divine measure of time associated with his resurrection and other kinds of things, and it was he who declared that uh, destroy this body, and in three days he would raise it up. So those are all kind of illustrations of the kinds of uh, things in divinity associated with the number three. We're now going to move on to the next number, and that's three and a half. <laughs> We're not advancing very quickly here. We're just I'm going one numbers, one half number at a time, but it'll speed up. Have no fear. Uh, and so the, uh, the three and a half is actually an evil number. So where three is divine, three and a half is considered to be evil. And the reason that it's evil is because it is half of the perfect number seven. And so, again, we probably should be talking about seven first, but uh, we'll get there. So, because it's a half of the perfect number seven, uh, it's considered to be evil. It also identifies an age of evil that typically ends in judgment or victory for God. And I'll talk about that and give some illustrations of that. It also is something that is expressed in several different formats. So you can have three and a half, but that would, in terms of three and a half years, that equates to 42 months. It also equates to 1260 days. And so we're going to see these kinds of terms used in the book of Revelation. Sometimes the, you'll see the 42 months, sometimes you'll see the 1260 days, but essentially it is a reference back to this concept of three and a half years, which is a period of evil.
in the book of Daniel, he expresses the same three and a half years as a time, times, and half time. Check out Daniel chapter 7 and you can read where he uses that particular system of identifying this period of three and a half. Now, how do you get three and a half out of time, times, and half time? It's because time equals one, the plural times equals two, and a half time is half of one, and so that's the half. So you get a time, one, times, plural, or two, plus a half equals three and a half. And so they're all talking about the same kinds of uh, period of measurement. Sometimes they have reference to the same thing, and sometimes they have uh, a different meaning altogether. They're not always staying or talking about the same period of evil time, uh, but they use that to express the idea, whatever that period of time is, um, it's three and a half. So an illustration of this is uh, where you have uh, three and a half days, which measures the period of time, and I'm talking literal days, three and a half days representing the abomination of desolation that will occur at the time of the second coming when the two witnesses are ministering. So you remember the two witnesses, they're uh, described in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. They're going to minister for three and a half years and then they're going to be killed. Their dead bodies will lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. And it is during that three and a half day period where we're going to have this abomination of desolation that will occur by the Gentiles who will be able to basically overrun the city of Jerusalem, desecrate, destroy the temple, do some really, really, really bad stuff. Uh, particularly if you read uh, in the book of Zechariah, um, really bad stuff, but that's the desolation. That's a three and a half day period of evil where that occurs. Then backing up and closely related by way of another illustration, we have the three and a half year ministry of the two witnesses. That period of time is known as the great tribulation. And so that also is a period of evil that occurs precedent to the second coming. We also have a three and a half decade period of time, which represents the period of time after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in roughly 34, 35 AD, probably closer to 34. Um, and then you have a 35 year period or three and a half decades that we call typically the apostolic period. And the church did pretty good initially, but by the end of that three and a half decade period, of great evil, the church basically had been largely destroyed. The last of the apostles had been killed, leaving John alone as probably the sole surviving apostle as of about 70 AD, which coincides in time with the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple as Jesus had prophesied on the eve of his crucifixion as recorded in uh, Matthew chapter 24. So again, you have all of these, th this concept of three and a half being a period, could be a day, could be years, could be decades. Uh, but the idea is, it's a measurement of time reflecting a period where Satan is in control and is a period of evil. Now, I wanna give you one other little illustration that, uh, that we find in, uh, in the more modern history with Joseph Smith. 
And if you ask yourself the question, which we don't know the answer to specifically, of when did the first vision occur? Um, it was never recorded in uh, Joseph Smith's history. He, the closest he comes to talking about the date was in the spring, early in the spring of 1820. And he talks about it being a beautiful, clear day, et cetera, et cetera. And some people have gone back and looked at the weather charts from 1820 and <clears throat> looking at uh, the type of work that he would have been performing uh, in that area of uh, New York where they'd be gathering uh, maple syrup and the, the maple syrup crop. and <laughs> They do all this kind of stuff to, to figure out, but they, con they concluded based upon the weather and other things that uh, the first vision would most likely have occurred in uh, the, the March timeframe. And they had a specific date uh, based on weather and stuff like that in the latter part of uh, March of 1820. Now I could have saved them a lot of trouble because I'm concluding that the three and a half year period that we're talking about as this er era of evil applies to what Joseph Smith uh, happened to him after his first vision. And so I'm going to read you a couple of accounts of what he described happened to him after his first vision. And this is from uh, the Joseph Smith history, chapter one, starting in verse 21. And this is Joseph saying, I soon found, however, that my telling the story, that is of his first vision, had excited a great deal of prejudice against me among professors of religion and was the cause of great persecution which continued to increase. And he goes on to talk about how he's only an obscure boy of 14 or 15 years old. So why would anybody take any notice of what he had to say in the first place? But nevertheless, his telling the story created a bitter persecution. And this was common among all the sects, all united to persecute me. So that's verse 22. Then we jump forward to verse 27 where he says, after his first vision, I continued to pursue my common vocations in life until the 21st of September, 1823, all the time suffering severe persecution at the hands of all classes of men, both religious and irreligious, because I continued to affirm that I had seen a vision. And then he concludes with this statement in verse 28, I was left to all kinds of temptations and mingling with all kinds of society. I frequently fell into many foolish errors and displayed the weakness of my youth. Again, referring to the period of time uh, since his first vision and when he uh, had his visit from the angel Moroni, because that's what happened on September of uh, the 21st of September of 1823 is the date on which the angel Moroni came and visited him. Now, what does that all have to do with three and a half? Well, let's back up. Back up three and a half years from September 21st, which Joseph describes as this horrible period of uh, persecution. And if you back up three and a half years, guess what? You come right to March of 1820. And if they were, if it was exact timing, it would uh, put it roughly about March 21st of 1820, which coincidentally is when 
these guys who are studying uh, all of the atmospheric conditions and everything else about Joseph's life and his vocation and everything, that's when they put it. Uh, but it's kind of interesting that Joseph Smith describes this era of evil, persecution, and temptations that he faced for three and a half years after his first vision. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that's what's going on, but uh, I, I think that it is consistent with the idea that three and a half is a number that consistently comes up. You ask yourself, how, how long was the drought in the time of Elijah? Remember, he had the seedling powers and he declared, well, you know what? We're not gonna have any rain. How long did it last? Three and a half years. Uh, go back to uh, the desecration of the temple in 168 BC by the Greek uh, guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He desecrated the temple in 168 BC. How long did it take the Jewish patriots, the Maccabee family, to uh, cause the uprising and reach the point where they were ultimately able to cleanse the temple? Three and a half years. How long was the Roman siege in Jerusalem prior to its ultimate destruction in 70 AD? <laughs> I don't even have to tell you, right? Three and a half years, from 66 to 70 AD, the Romans had Jerusalem under siege. And as described by Josephus, just the hunger and uh, uh, mothers eating their children, I mean, the, the devastation is just horrendous. But it was a three and a half year period of uh, evil inflicted upon the Jews. And uh, so there, there's consistency in the use of this. And we'll, we'll be talking about it more because it, it comes up with some frequency in the book of Revelation. So that, with that, we're going to now move uh, on to the uh, next significant number, and that's the number four. Four is a world number or the world number. Uh, it represents a geographical whole. And so you have four cardinal points of the, uh, the compass. And so this represents physical completeness as opposed to spiritual and, and, and some other things. Um, it's often expressed by, the, by four words grouped together. So for example, if we talk in terms of all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, which is a phrase that is fairly common uh, in, in all kinds of scripture, the idea is, is the, the use of the four words is probably less concerned with what does the specific word nation refer to? What is the specific word kindred? What is tongues? What are people? It's really an expression that uh, uh, we're talking about geographical completeness. And so if, if you say that the gospel needs to go forth to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, what you're really saying is it needs to be geographically complete, going throughout the entire world. Uh, we have uh, the four Gospels in the New Testament, which uh, some attribute the fact that there are four specifically because this, the number four then translates into the idea or concept that it is a testimony to the whole world. Now, if you want to consider uh, the question of how, how should I love God? If, if the first great commandment is to love the Lord. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, you're supposed to do it with your whole heart, might, mind, and strength. There's four words that describe how you should love God. And again, the idea is that the, there's nothing that, uh, no part of you that is not 
uh, part of loving God. And so it, 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 there's a certain wholeness uh, expressed by the number four as well through the word combinations that are used in the Doctrine and Covenants section four where it says you're supposed to serve God. How are you supposed to serve him? Again, with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. Uh, <clears throat> the number four appears in other uh, places. For example, Nebuchadnezzar's dream identifies four world kingdoms, the gold representing Babylon, silver, the Medo-Persians, the brass, the Greek Empire, and the iron legs representative of the Roman Empire. So four world kingdoms. We also have in the scriptures talking about the fact that the elect are to be gathered from where? The four quarters of the earth representing spiritual Babylon or the, the worldwide scope of spiritual Babylon being in the four quarters. Israel is to be gathered both from the four quarters of the earth and from the four winds. When we think about winds, you have to stop and start thinking about, well, that's something heavenly. That's something that's not earthly. And now, all of a sudden, if you're understanding the sim symbolism associated with winds as distinct from the earth, suddenly it reaches over into the spirit world where we're going to have the gathering of Israel from the four quarters of the physical earth, but also from the four winds or from the spirit world. And uh, President Nelson has been talking about that uh, a lot of late, and the fact that uh, we have to be working on both sides of the veil to gather Israel, and that's consistent with these words that express the four quarters of the earth and from the four winds. Uh, other illustrations or examples of the use of the number four, um, we have the four creatures in paradise in Revelation 4 and 5 that are representative of the four classes of creation. And by the four classes of creation, essentially we're talking about uh, the, uh, the human family or the kingdom of man, then the kingdom of the beasts, the kingdom of the plants, and then the mineral kingdom. So the four classes of creation represented by these four living creatures in paradise. We have the four streams um, that uh, flowed out of the Garden of Eden. So you had one big river flowing out of the Garden of Eden and it divided into uh, four uh, main rivers. We have the dimensions of the Holy of Holies as a square, okay, being four corners. Um, in the celestial city uh, described in Revelation chapter 21, Everything's kind of identified in terms of describing the dimensions um, and structure of the city comes in fours. We have the four restoration angels uh, that are identified in Revelation chapter 7. We have the four angels in the Euphrates River that uh, arise at the time when Armageddon is going to be, begin in Revelation 9. So you can see the use of the number four is uh, used uh, fairly frequently, as is three, three and a half, and these other numbers as well, to uh, essentially identify this fullness of geography or the fullness of the soul, things of that nature. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the number six. Uh, the number six is also considered to be an evil number because it approaches but falls one short of the perfect number seven. So that's why it's an evil number. It's also evil because it is half of the sacred number 12. 
And so when we get to our discussion of 12, we'll realize that it also is considered to be a sacred number. If you only get half of it, well, that's obviously evil. Uh, we, in connection with the, the number six, we can talk about the fact that if you put three sixes together, uh, you basically have combined, you, you now use the number three together with the number six, putting them together to get 666, well, that must mean perfect imperfection because you've taken a perfect number three, putting it together with an imperfect number six, perfect imperfection, which describes the second beast that uh, John identifies in Revelation 13, 18. And so we'll, we'll talk about him when we get to chapter 13. Okay, so now finally we get to that moment we've all been waiting for, the number seven. It's the granddaddy number of them all. It's kind of like the Cheyenne frontier days of the Bible, if you will. And so this is the most widely used number in the Bible. It appears almost 600 times in the Bible. And essentially it uh, is representative or symbolic of completeness, perfection, fullness. And it's not limited to the, uh, the ancient Israelites or the Jews. Uh, it's a number that uh, has that same meaning in many ancient cultures, such as the Persians, Hindus, even the American Indians, in ancient China, in Egypt, okay? The number crops up all over the place, and it fairly consistently deals with this idea of completeness, perfection, and fullness. So in, in the scriptures and in religious context, just to give you a few illustrations, and I'm not gonna go over all six or 600 of them, <laughs> <laughs> You'll be happy to know, but you, you have the seven days of creation. You have the seven dispensations or seven millennia of temporal time. When uh, <clears throat> Joshua and the Israelites entered the promised land and the first city they came to was Jericho and they had to basically capture Jericho, well, what they do? Well, they naturally marched around the city seven times and uh, you stomp on their feet and before you know it, the whole city just kind of collapses, but that's after seven circles of uh, running around and chanting. How many, how many uh, devils uh, possessed Mary Magdalene? Seven. There were seven Beatitudes. Uh, the leprous Naaman in the Old Testament had to bathe seven times in the Jordan River to be cleansed of his leprosy. The seventh day of the week was the Sabbath, and it was made a sacred day, a day of rest. The menorah, how many candlesticks on the menorah? We know seven, of course. Uh, we have seven archangels. When the Sadducees, when the Sadducees came to Jesus, asking him a hypothetical question about marriage. And you'll remember they said this woman was married, her husband dies, but he had seven brothers. And she had to marry each of them in turn, and each in turn, she had a very bad luck. She was the widow maker. And uh, each of the brothers died, but there were seven of them in the story that is used by the Sadducees. Again, the idea is, it's not so much that there were seven of them, as a new as a number as a literal number but the symbolism associated with seven meaning she married everybody she could and they're just trying to convey this idea behind the story so those are all illustrations of uh, things that you'll find in the scriptures to be a little bit more specific the book of revelation uses the number 
uh, seven, not less than 52 times. And so you have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, you have seven vial plagues, you have seven churches, and, and the list kind of goes on and on. But this number just gets uh, repeatedly used. In a secular context, uh, you have uh, this, the number coming up as well. For example, Jacob worked seven years in order to uh, be able to marry Rachel. And, and then, of course, uh, his father-in-law uh, did a switcheroo, and so he ended up working another seven years because he ended up with Leah first, and so finally got to marry Rachel after another seven years. Uh, when Jacob uh, bowed down to his brother Esau, remember, they were Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, and uh, they were at odds for a long uh, period of their lives, but finally they reconciled. And when Jacob came to reconcile with, e with Esau, it says that he bowed down to Esau seven times. In Egypt, we had seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. In the story of Samson, how many locks of hair were supposedly going to make him weak? It was seven. Nebuchadnezzar heated his furnace seven times more than usual in order to burn Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if you're having difficulty remember the, remembering the names of these uh, three uh, Hebrew men that were thrown into the furnace that was heated seven times, then I will simply refer to you my good friend George, who said the best way to remember it is uh, your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you can remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Your shack, my shack, or a bungalow. Now I've also heard it, your shack, my shack, and a bed to go. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, but you can see where these number seven come in. The, the, the bungalow, not so much an issue of seven, but at any rate. Um, <clears throat> now, the seven, in addition to having this numerical significance, uh, was also used as an outward token or sign of when a covenant was made. And so anciently, if you were going to ratify it, what you would do is you would seven it, okay? So that's because the, the root word in Hebrew um, for the word seven is Shiva. And the Hebrew verb uh, from that same root means to make an oath. So seven was associated with uh, with oath making and i can give you an illustration of that so we go all the way back to the time of abraham who dug his well <clears throat> in the southern part of uh, the lands promised to israel and after he built the well there's a little bit of a conflict that came up with his neighbor by the name of abimelech and so they were fighting over who owns the well and uh, eventually, you know, I'm sure they lawyered up and got to a settlement conference and uh, figured out, okay, here's the deal. And after they made their contract confirming that Abraham owned the well, Abraham then brought in these seven new lambs uh, at the time that the contract or the oath covenant was being made. And Abimelech kind of said, well, what's up with the seven new lambs? Um, and the reason was is because the seven is associated with covenant making and it became a sign of the covenant that was made between Abimelech 
and Abraham. Now you still know the place today because the name of the place where that occurs still carries the name associated with this the seven ewe lambs that were brought to this well. And the name of it is Beersheba. Do you say, oh yeah, I, I remember hearing about Beersheba. Well, Beer means well, Sheba coming from that Hebrew word root word means seven so it became the well of seven Beersheba and so that's how essentially he confirmed the contract now today we just run off to the title company and, and see who owns the land but in the olden days they didn't have the title company and so they do things to commemorate and uh, to signify what occurred in that location and it still bears those markings today so those are all kind of illustrations of how the number seven works and as you see the number seven come up you'll now have a hopefully a better context and understanding for what it really means so now we move on to the number eight the number eight represents a new era or new life, a superabundance, if you will, after the perfected age of seven is complete. And uh, <clears throat> if you got, want to take some examples of uh, this, we have, for example, the eight witnesses to the Book of Mormon. We talked about the three, and then there were eight. Not coincidental that the Lord designated that there were to be eight witnesses to the Book of Mormon in addition to the three. We also have Sunday being the eighth day of the week. It also represents the new Christian era. We commemorate the, uh, the resurrection of the Savior on the first day of the week um, because of his newness of life. But the, the first day of the week also represents the eighth day of the last week before that. And so you see this, this idea, the concept of this newness of life is associated even with the uh, worship of the Savior on our Sabbath day on a Sunday because that that is the newness okay you had uh, other illustrations of when lepers were reinstated into society after their cleansing that occurred after eight days you have the circumcision of male children on the eighth day corresponding also in this time with the baptism of children at age eight when you get baptized of course you you come up out of the water a new person and a new life you take upon yourself a new name of jesus christ um, and all of these things are tied and connected to the the number eight you had the pentecost uh, which was the eighth day after 49 days uh, of time meaning the Pentecost was the the 50th day after the, uh, the the first harvest occurred and so there were exactly 49 days seven weeks of seven and then that one extra day being the eighth day after the 49 of seven sevens then you have the Pentecost we also have eight people saved on the ark in the days of Noah and there there are probably other illustrations one of which of course uh, you might not think uh, is but uh, that would be Johnny Lingo <laughs> so if you grew up you know in my era Johnny Lingo was something you know, when you would go to the temple and do baptisms for the dead to keep the kids from uh, getting too rambunctious we'd always watch Johnny Lingo and it kept our attention I don't, I don't think they do that anymore I, I don't know why but at any rate so Johnny Lingo you remember the story Johnny Lingo uh, was getting to the uh, ripe old age where he was to marry and he wanted to marry Mahana 
and Mahana was uh, is described in the movie not a very attractive girl, and her father thought she was ugly, and uh, that he couldn't get very many cows as a dowry for Mahana, and so the big debate was how much would Johnny Lingo be willing to give uh, for Mahana to have her become his wife and so the day of the negotiation comes up and everybody's sitting there thinking to the father-in-law you know if you ask for just one leg of a cow you'll be asking too much <laughs> you don't even have enough for a pot roast on sunday um and so the the father sits down with johnny lingo and he takes the bold move of saying that he wants three cows for mahana and the whole village is sitting there <gasps> just it's shock and awe, you know, that the, the father would have the gall to ask for three cows for Mahana. And Johnny Lingo's reaction was, three is not enough. I will give eight cows. <laughs> so Mahana became an eight-cow woman. Now, you can see here the symbolism now. Oh, oh you don't see it? <laughs> well, hang on. Here's the symbolism. First of all, she could have had, he could have had her for three cows, which is a divine number. He offers eight cows, but think about what happened next in the movie, right? After Johnny offers eight cows, what that did for Mahana was encouraged her and gave her a sense of self-worth to the point that she became the person uh, that was truly represented by the eight cows that she had, she was worth. And so um, the, the father-in-law, you'll recall, after uh, Mahana becomes this beautiful woman in this movie, he's mad because he didn't think that he asked for enough cows. He should have gotten more than even the eight cows. But the idea is, and I don't know that the producers of this movie had any idea that uh, they were choosing eight cows as a symbol of a newness of life, a new era, and a, of superabundance. But that's essentially what happens, was the, the eight then turned Mahana into this new person. She had a new life and uh, this new beauty that was unfound until uh, the eight cows. So there you have it. Uh, now you'll always remember when you hear eight in the scriptures, you're going to be thinking about Johnny Lingo and Mahana for the rest of your life. <laughs> and it's better than a lettuce sandwich. All right, so we now come to the number 10. 10 is the, the universal number for wholeness and completeness, okay? But it's different than the number 7 because 7 also has this concept of wholeness and completeness and fullness. And the difference being that 7 is a sacred number um, and 10 tends to be more of a universal number that is not necessarily and often is not associated with sacred things. And so you can have worldly kingdoms and their power that are associated with the number 10, just as you can have 10 being associated with completeness in the kingdom of God as well. Now the other thing that you have when you think about the number 10 is it is a representative whole of a part. And so think of tithing, for example. You have tithing that is one-tenth, but a tenth is only part of the whole thing. And so that's where the number 10 kind of comes into play here a little bit. 
the Jews use tens and multiples of tens in their system of counting. And in the book of Revelation, we're going to encounter some things where uh, numbers are described in terms of a thousand thousand or 10,000 times 10,000 in describing the 200 million people that make up the armies of Armageddon, the book of Revelation describes it as 200,000 thousands, all right? So these are where some of the uh, the tens come into play. In, in other examples, <clears throat> we have uh, an earthquake that's going to happen in the uh, 11th chapter of the book of Revelation where we have a, the earthquake destroys a tenth part of the city, okay? A whole of a part. We have the 10... Egyptian plagues, which again represent, it's not like he, he destroyed the Egyptians, but they were effectively a part of the whole of the Egyptian culture was destroyed by the 10 Egyptian plagues. You have the 10 tribes of Israel, the 10 lost tribes, okay? They're a whole of a part or part of the whole. You have 10 kingdoms that are often described as the 10 toes in the image from the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. We have 10 kings of the modern era. Not that there are just 10 kings or 10 countries in the modern era, but these are the whole of a part or a representative part of the whole of all the kings in the modern era. Uh, in the millennium, we have uh, 10 times 10 times 10 to arrive at 1,000. In the temple, the Holy of Holies, the dimensions were 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. We have 10 lepers. We have 10 talents. We have 10 virgins. Um, in the Jewish society, you had to have 10 worshipers minimum in order to be able to worship in the synagogue. Similarly, you had to have a minimum of 10 people to eat the Passover meal. We have the 10 cities of the Decapolis on the east of Jordan. In the Revelation chapter 13, we have the first beast that has seven heads, 10 horns, and 10 crowns. So in this context, this beast, it's describing here the power of the beast because a horn is symbolic of power. So if you think of a, a bull or something that has these horns and he comes and gores you, you know, that, that's pretty ugly. So the idea is that a horn conveys this notion of power. So if Satan has 10 horns, he's really powerful, but by the same token, since it's using the number 10, you have to understand that, oh, but it's only a part of the whole. So he has lots of power, but he does not have all power because he has only the whole of a part of the power that God allows him to have. Um, you have the, in another example from the book of Revelation in describing Smyrna, which is one of the seven cities. You had 10 days of tribulation that they're going to go through. Does that mean they had 10 actual days of tribulation that they were going to be subjected to? The answer is no. What they had was they had tribulation that was a whole of a part or part of the whole, meaning they weren't going to be destroyed by it. Uh, it was going to challenge them a great deal. Now, one other illustration we have is the Ten Commandments, okay? And we have to recognize that the Ten Commandments, while they establish this moral code and the expectations of our Father in Heaven, because there are ten of them, they don't represent all of the law. They don't represent, you do these ten things and you're a shoe in for the celestial kingdom. They are the, a whole of a part 
that is reflective of what the Lord expects of us. And I had an ex experience with the uh, Ten Commandments when uh, uh, our family went over to uh, uh, Israel in uh, 2017, and we, we took one of those uh, tours. So we were with a, a group of people, and we travel around on, on a bus and see the various sites, and it's very enjoyable. And uh, <laughs> so we had the a tour guide that was on the bus. His name was uh, Adi Israel. Uh, and uh, he's a great guy, great tour guide, and, and one day he's up in the front of the bus. So, oh, I took all of the children, so we had our children and their spouses and all of us. They'd always kick us to the back of the bus because we were always so noisy and raucous, and uh, so that's the way the things went in Jerusalem. And so Adi is up in the front of the bus, you know, he's a speaker, so you can hear him, and he was explaining to us that in the uh, in by Jewish tradition there are 613 laws set forth in the Jewish Torah and w and when they wear their uh, their shawls or their robes uh, you know they have 613 little strands uh, representing each of the uh, the 613 laws from the Jewish Torah and as he's explaining <laughs> explaining this I shout from the back of the bus and I said hey wait a minute I thought there were only 10 commandments. You're telling me that we have this commandment inflation of 613? <laughs> and so his reaction was, throw him off the bus. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, I don't know so much about whether there's 613 laws, but I do know that the 10 commandments are essentially 10 in number because they represent the uh, part of the whole law that God expects us to live. And uh, if you don't take my word on that, then you're going to get thrown off the bus. <laughs> so the last number that I want to just talk about is uh, the number 12. 12 is also a sacred number. It's rooted, obviously, in the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, of which there are always 12 in number. It's also called the priesthood number or the church number because of its association with the, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles and the, the fullness of the priesthood. The number symbolizes perfection and exaltation in the celestial kingdom. And so what you have, uh, the number of exalted people in the celestial kingdom are numbered according to the 12 tribes of Israel and specifically the patriarchal order or patriarchal government in the celestial kingdom is based on the number 12. And so you have things where the uh, 12 includes the, the 144,000 servants, which is derived from multiplying the number 12 or squaring it, multiplying it by itself or squaring it times 1,000, 1,000 being a superlative number. And these are the 144,000 servants that John first describes in Revelation chapter 7 who have to be sealed in their forehead. They then show up in uh, the first and second verses of chapter 14 where they're standing on Mount Zion with the Savior. And so they represent exalted people. And so when you see this, <clears throat> excuse me, when you see this 144,000 servants, uh, you have to understand we're talking about ex exaltation-worthy people. And so sometimes in the church, we, we tend to be a little bit lax and not as precise as we could be of what's going on in the celestial kingdom. And we fail to uh, distinguish 
those that go to celestial glory from those that go to an exalted state within the celestial kingdom. These 144,000 servants, you have to always remember the message conveyed behind that is a fullness of priesthood, fullness within the patriarchal order of, uh, of government. And so if you keep that in mind, then uh, it's a lot easier for you to, uh, to recognize what is being discussed here. So some of the examples of the, uh, the use of the number 12, uh, you'll find a number of them in Revelation chapter 21 where it's describing the celestial kingdom as a city and it has 12 gates, it has 12 foundations. All of the dimensions of the, the wall are associated with the measurement of 144 cubits. You have in the celestial kingdom a tree of life that bears 12 fruits in 12 months. So all of those things, again, lead to this concept of uh, sacredness and exaltation in the celestial kingdom. In other illustrations, you have Elijah, who was on Mount Carmel having his little duel with the uh, 500 priests of Baal. And uh, after the uh, priests of Baal had tried unsuccessfully to get the sun god Apollo at that time to, uh, to rain down fire and start the fire on the altar, Elijah then took four jugs of water and poured it on the altar to just completely drench it in water before Jehovah was called upon to rain down fire. And after he put the first four jugs of water on the altar, he repeated that three times. So he put four jugs, brought in four more, did it a second time, and then a third time. So you end up with how many jugs? Okay, three times four is 12. So he had 12 jugs of water that he was using to douse the altar before calling down fire from Jehovah. We have, of course, things like 12 months in the year. We have the 12 jewels in the breastplate worn by the high priest. We have the 12 cakes of showbread in the tabernacle and in the temple. We have Joshua erecting 12 stones at the time that they crossed the Jordan River. In uh, the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation chapter 5 verse 6, he gives a description of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God and describes him in symbolic terms as having 12 horns and 12 eyes. Again, concepts associated with the, the, the priesthood um, and in its fullness, all right? So th those are the, the significant numbers that we have in the uh, book of Revelation and in other contexts. Now, it's important to keep in mind that numbers can be used in combination with each other to provide additional meanings or certain numbers are derived from certain base numbers. And if you understand all of them, then you can see how they fit together. So, for example, the perfect number seven is a divine number, um, that, as we have talked about, but it also is derived from the addition of the divine number three added to the world number four. So perfection in seven comes from three added to four. The number 70 is uh, represented as uh, the number seven multiplied by the number 10, which typically means a, a multitude of people. It can also stand for a prophetic period of years. So for example, how long were the Israelites, the Jews 
in captivity in Babylon 70 years. And that, again, is a derivation from the seven, sacred seven, multiplied uh, by 10. It's also kind of interesting that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, which if you look at what happened at the midpoint, we've talked about this concept of an evil era of evil being three and a half. Well, between zero and 70 AD, the midpoint of that would have been the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so roughly three and a half decades or an era of evil after Christ was crucified, you have the destruction of Jerusalem, which ends up as seven multiplied by ten, deriving the number 70. So other, other uses of the number 70 come up when uh, Jacob entered Egypt with his family to avoid the famine in Canaan. He went down there, according to the uh, biblical account, with 70 descendants. Now that could be 70 individuals, but more likely what it's expressing is this idea of a divine number of people, a multitude of people that were going down into Egypt as part of Jacob's family. You then have 70 elders of Israel in the time of Moses, and again, 70 ministers in the time of Christ. Uh, during the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, you have 70 bullocks that were sacrificed during that particular week. There were more sacrifices in that week than in any other uh, festival or feast that were held by the Jews. Then you had, for example, Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy that's found in Daniel chapter number nine. And the whole prophecy, it's only four verses long, but it's all about 70. And uh, I'm actually going to spend one podcast doing nothing but talking about Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And we'll, we'll do that in, in November and a few weeks from now. Uh, but that's an, a prophecy that you need to understand in order to understand some of the timing of events that occur in the book of Revelation. Specifically, it establishes the length of period of time for the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, spoiler alert, plug yours if you don't want to hear it's going to be seven years, and that's derived from Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy that we'll talk about in November. The other combinations of numbers, I, I mentioned this briefly before, if you put three sixes together, you get the 666 to divine the perfectly imperfect beast in Revelation chapter 13. And I, I mentioned this one also before when I were talking about the number 12 being a priesthood number, if you square that number to get to 144, then multiply it by the superlative number of 1,000, which is 10 times 10 times 10, or 10 cubed, you come up with 144,000 as a representative symbol or number for the fullness of priesthood power and exaltation worthy saints. So that's a little bit about the uh, symbolism associated with numbers particular to the book of Revelation and more generally to the Bible as a whole. And my hope is, is that as you understand these numbers, they will begin to speak deeper and more significant meanings to you as you read the scriptures and certainly as you read the book of, more, the book of Revelation than you have uh, had in the past. And as you understand what these words mean and they begin to speak to you, 
then you can go through life uh, with a full meat sandwich and you're not stuck with just a lettuce sandwich. And, and I hope that will be the case for you. I'll see you next week.